friends, I am so grateful to have you here with me as we continue pressing into scripture to understand why Jesus died. Throughout this study, we've been focused on atonement in scripture. How atonement means to cover over. How the end result of atonement is not appeasement of God's wrath, but forgiveness and restoration to a right relationship with God. And how the Levitical priests of the Old Testament and Christ in the New Testament were, among other things, called out and set apart to make atonement for people when they had sinned. In this episode, we're going to delve into the sacrificial component of atonement, because not only did Jesus make atonement for us as our high priest, he offered himself as the sacrifice of atonement. As a reminder, the references we look at today, resources, and my contact information are all included in the PDF linked in the description. The first time John the baptizer sees Jesus in John 1 verse 29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9, the last part of verse 26 says, At the consummation of the ages, Christ has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Today, we're going to really wrestle, and I do mean wrestle, with what it means that Jesus came to take sin away. Because in fundamental and evangelical Christian circles, there's this really pervasive idea that the sacrifice of atonement is intended to pay the penalty for sin, and indeed that the sacrifice of atonement stands in for the sinner. It's known as the doctrine of penal substitution, and it's very closely tied to the idea that atonement is meant to appease God's wrath towards sinners, which, as we looked at in the Appeasement versus Restoration episode, I believe is largely, if not entirely, discredited by the testimony of Scripture. It was to examine the doctrine of penal substitution in light of Scripture that I embarked on this study in the first place. What I quickly discovered in my survey of the 104 Old Testament references to atonement and the six New Testament references to propitiation, and what I endeavored to establish in the episode on the role of priesthood in atonement, is that it is the priest who stands in the place of the sinner when making atonement. What I will endeavor to establish in this episode is that, in part, the sacrifice of atonement stands in the place of sin. First, I have to, at least partially, dismantle the idea that the sacrifice of atonement pays the penalty for sin. Now, I say partially because I am not dismissing the idea of ransom or redemption, which I believe is strongly defended in the testimony of Scripture, and the ramifications of which we will delve into in the next episode, nor am I denying the penalty for sin. The testimony of Scripture is clear. The penalty for sin is, and always has been, death. But I would humbly submit for your consideration that atonement does not and was never intended to cover every sin, and therefore could never fully settle the penalty for sin. For example, in Old Testament law, atonement was not prescribed in cases of intentionally killing someone, striking one's father or mother, kidnapping, 
cursing one's father and mother, sorcery, bestiality, sacrificing one's children to Moloch, resorting to mediums or spiritists, sexual immorality, being a medium or spiritist, defiance, refusing to purify oneself from one's uncleanness, encouraging idolatry, idolatry itself, disregarding the decisions of the priests and judges, stubbornness and rebelliousness towards one's parents, raping an engaged woman, and in some cases, being raped as an engaged woman. Rather than atonement, the penalty prescribed for these sins was bearing one's own guilt, being cut off from one's people, and death. I believe, and please correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, but I believe that all of these refer to capital punishment. The references to these sins and their penalties are listed in the document linked in this episode's description if you would like to explore them all further. Beyond these capital offenses, when someone's sin adversely affected another person, restitution was required in addition to atonement. Exodus 21 verses 23 through 25 says, If there is injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. This is echoed in Deuteronomy 19 verse 21. You shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Even with the institution of atonement in Old Testament law, God still judged and held his people accountable for their sin because he is just. Deuteronomy 7 verses 9 and 10 sums it up well. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant of loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Then we have Deuteronomy 28, which discusses at length the blessings that come with corporate obedience and the penalties that come with corporate disobedience. Of course, corporate obedience and consequent blessings came from dealing with sin according to the law, and corporate disobedience and consequent penalties came from mishandling sin according to the law. In Old Testament law, atonement was by no means a get-out-of-jail-free card for sin. But what about the blood of Jesus? Doesn't the blood of Jesus cover or pay the penalty for every sin? Now, before I share what I believe about this, please remember, I am, by my own admission, a little unorthodox. What that means is that what I am about to share with you is not the prevailing view in the Christian circles in which I came up. Not only that, but if we'd been talking about this six or even five years ago, I would have said almost entirely the opposite of what I'm about to say. My mind and heart have been completely changed about what the blood of Jesus covers. Because friends, I do not believe the blood of Jesus covers or pays the penalty for every sin. 
I do not believe it was ever intended to. Instead, I would humbly submit for your consideration that the blood of Jesus does not cover or pay the penalty for knowing and willful sin. I believe that to the degree that we knowingly and willfully sin is the degree to which we will be judged. 2 Thessalonians 1, the last part of verse 7 through verse 9 says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 8 says, In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Hebrews 10 verses 26 through 29 says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Believers should expect to bear responsibility for what they have done. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. But if not to pay the penalty for sin, why the sacrificial component of atonement? Why did Jesus die? I think there are two components. Ransom for sinners, which we're going to dig into in the next episode, and sanctification, which we're going to examine today. In Old Testament law, atonement is often made as a part of purification and cleansing rituals. We see it prescribed in Leviticus 12 along with purification and cleansing from childbirth. In Leviticus 14, along with purification and cleansing from leprosy in both individuals and objects. In Leviticus 15, along with purification and cleansing from abnormal discharges. In Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, when atonement was made not only for God's people, but for the tent of meeting, altar, and holy place. We see it in Numbers 8, as the Levites are being given to God. The last part of verse 21 says, Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. 
In Ezekiel 43 and 45, God's people are in Babylonian captivity, but there's this prophecy that the temple is going to be restored and that worship there is going to be restored and that atonement will be made for the altar and the temple to purify and cleanse them. As an aside, I talk about that temple restoration in an episode called The Day of Small Things, which, you guessed it, is linked in this episode's references and resources in the description. The idea of purification and cleansing continues in the New Testament. Hebrews 9, the last part of verse 12 through verse 14, says of Jesus, Through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 10 verse 10 says, By God's will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Further down in verse 14 it says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Hebrews 13 verse 12 says, Jesus, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And 1 John 1 verse 7 says, The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Friends, I believe and would humbly submit to you for your consideration that God is not, never has been, and could never be satisfied with anything less than people putting their sin to death. Listen to what David says in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 1 verses 11 through 17 says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Isaiah 27 verse 9 says, Therefore through this Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven, and this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when ashram and incense altars will not stand. I have said it many times over on this podcast, and I'll say it again. God wants to bring people back into right relationship with himself. 
When people sin, it creates distance between themselves and God. I believe the only thing that can fully restore that relationship is repentance, the death of the sin that created the distance in the first place. I believe the sacrifice of atonement can be seen as a figure or a picture of sin being put to death. Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Think abstractly with me here for a moment. The life of the flesh is in the blood. In New Testament Greek, the idea of flesh encompasses everything that is of human origin, anything that is not of the spirit. Now, this verse is obviously not in the New Testament, and linguistically there is no connection between the Hebrew concept of flesh, which is very literal, and the Greek concept, which is often spiritual. This is just how my brain works on full display here. You're welcome. But bearing in mind that the life of the flesh is in the blood, I want to come over to the New Testament now and play this idea out in Jesus and his sacrifice of atonement. John 1 verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the doctrine of hypostatic union. Jesus was fully God and fully man. John further declares that Jesus came to take away the sins of the world. In Romans 8, verse 3, Paul says, What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul writes, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Then in chapter 3 verse 18, Peter says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Christ was sinless. I want to be very clear about that. But in his sacrifice of atonement, in sacrificing his physical body, he showed us how to approach his father through the death of our own flesh, through the death of anything in us that is not of him. In the time after next, we're going to begin examining what this means for us as we consider Christ as the firstborn among many brethren. Now, am I saying that the sacrifice of atonement is only a picture, or that Jesus only died to show us how to die to sin and approach the Father? Absolutely not. I certainly think that's a critical idea, but it is by no means the whole picture.
As I mentioned earlier, in the next episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the idea of ransom, which I believe is what the sacrifice of atonement is meant to pay. In Old Testament law, ransom is often separate from atonement, but they are linked linguistically, and I'm really looking forward to getting into that with all of you. I want to leave you with 1 John 3, verses 5 and 8. You know that Jesus appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The one who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Until next time, friends.